On February 4th, The Minds of Madness is set to release an investigative four-part series centered on a cold case from nearly four decades ago. At first, it was just, my mom's gone. And then it became, you know, your mom was taken by a bad man. They found video of him killing women. If you'd ever watched any uh, episodes of Breaking Bad, that's exactly what you would see. He buried these 11 women and kept going out there. He made a road going out there. You got this dude saying, hey, I'm going to show your family these pictures. And, like, he's secretly taping her. The cops don't care. We're nothing to them. Dumped her like a piece of garbage, you know? I don't see anything that screams there's two people doing this. I never thought anything was going to come of this case. Ever. Listen to the Minds of Madness series, Who Killed Jennifer, starting February 4th, wherever you get your podcasts. The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Things happen to all of us that we will never completely get over, whether it be violent crime like rape or being hurt deeply by a loved one. In order to get past my brokenness, I had to set aside my need for an instant fix. Then, by God's grace, I could begin my journey towards freedom and joy. Jane Carson Sandler, from Frozen in Fear, the true story of surviving the shadows of death. Well, welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am your host, Jill. This is episode 81, Survivor's Voices, from Frozen in Fear, the true story of surviving the shadows of death by Jane Carson Sandler, part two. I hope you're bearing up well with all the snow and the cold weather. We are staying bundled up. I've got my my fuzzy pants on and my fuzzy shirt and slippers. So hope everything's going well with you. Grab a hot chocolate and cuddle up. And let's get back to our true crime book. Oh, 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 one thing, Murder Bookie patrons, we have a Patreon Zoom tonight. Check your email for your private link. Bring your book or case suggestions. There is so much to talk about in true crime. Rex Hewerman's back in the news last week. He's charged with the fourth murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes on the Long Island serial killer case. Murdoch was in court, and that didn't go so well for him. So let's talk true crime on Patreon. Oh, and I have a wonderful announcement. CrimeCon 2024 is in Nashville, May 31st to June 2nd. If you plan to attend and you have not gotten your CrimeCon badge, you can use my code, all lowercases, MURDERSHELF, and save 10%. I cannot wait to see you again. I'm thinking about doing some kind of meetup or something, so I'll try to arrange it as the schedule comes out and we can see when we have free time. You can always find me on Podcast Row. Yes, I'm going to be there again. And I'm always around in the evening grabbing some food and drinks. So I'm so looking forward to CrimeCon in May. And remember the code, MURDERSHELF. In last episode 80, Survivor Mode, which, you know, you should probably listen to before this one, uh, Jane Carson Sandler told us about the day that forever changed her life when she was raped by the East Area Rapist. 
Jane coped with anxiety, shame, guilt, fear, fear that made her suspicious of every man who crossed her path, wondering, is that him? Is he the one? And she isn't the only victim, as rapes continued happening, terrorizing the Sacramento, California area, as the police and the public worked to catch this guy. We now know that Joseph James D'Angelo is the East Area Rapist, and his crime spree was escalating to murder, and he will kill 13 people. Now known as the Golden State Killer, he will spend the rest of his miserable life alone, locked away behind bars. But we didn't know this back in 1976, not until 2018 when he was finally arrested. In the meantime, though, what happened to Jane? What kind of lives did the other 50-plus victims of the East Area Rapists lead between then and now? In the aftermath of the rape, Jane and Bill immediately installed an alarm system in their home, trying to salvage some sense of security, which continued to elude Jane. Quickly, she tried to resume what had been her normal life, going back to school, three-year-old son Paul was back to daycare, and Bill to the Air Force. But she was walking on eggshells. High-top black sneakers caused anxiety to well up. Chatting casually with friends, the topic of the rapist inevitably came up, with none suspecting that Jane was one of his victims. She was silent about her rape, like so many women, silenced from shame. Media was now reporting regularly on the crimes committed against these women. Among the early police releases was the notion that the rapist was homosexual. Now, this provoked Dr. Elizabeth Harrison, a consultant for the Sacramento Rape Crisis Center, to speak out in a newspaper interview setting the record straight. The goal of this rapist was, quote, to hurt and degrade the females he terrorized. He has a lot of difficulty relating to females and was probably an abused child by his family. There was no factual way to determine if he was homosexual, nor would it matter. He was aggressive and violent, making a point to instill fear, to debase and dominate her, controlling the situation fully. End quote. Occasionally, the police would swing by James' home, giving her an update and asking questions again. They sought to figure out any connection between the victims. An ongoing investigation, they shared a minimal amount of details with Jane, but hoped to hit the nail on the head. But that did not happen, disappointing so many who wanted this guy caught. As time slowly crept by, Jane began, thankfully, to regain her equilibrium, daily thoughts of ear dwindling or some sense of normalcy was returning. That was until one afternoon caused the paralyzing terror to skyrocket upward once more. Sunny afternoon in 1977, Bill was away on temporary duty for the Air Force. Alone that weekend, Jane was good and confident that with their additional security measures, she would be fine. With Paul napping, Jane was sunbathing in the backyard in her two-piece bathing suit, soaking up the vitamin D. On her stomach, luxuriously stretched out, she untied her top so she'd avoid tan lines. Then something hit her back, perhaps a small pebble. Ignoring it initially, she felt a second, then a third, something landing on her back. Stomach quivering, catching her breath, 
She knew something out of the ordinary was happening. And her first thought? The rapist was back. He must know that Bill was gone. Jolting up, she raced inside to call the police. Remember, there's no cell phones next to you in 1977, murder bookies. Quickly, the police arrived. Breathless, agitated, they knew she was an ear rape victim, and they raced outside, jumping over her back fence looking for the suspect. Jane writes, quote, Was someone hurling small rocks at me in hopes that I would stand up without my top and they'd get the thrill of seeing my breasts? How degrading, how humiliating, end quote. Hurling the six-foot fence herself, she hoped to see her attacker arrested, and she cut her finger open during the jump and probably needed stitches, but there was no way she was going back to the emergency room, the same one she'd gone to after the rape, which would trigger all of the anxiety, fear, and tumult again from that morning. The officers collected Jane, and they drove her back to her home where she woke her son, going to spend the remainder of the day at a friend's home. The officers searched an orchard behind her home and came upon an elderly gentleman living in a trailer who confessed. Angry, fear welling up from her core, Jane raged, quote, How dare this creep terrorize me? End quote. She did not need the stupidity in her life causing untold emotional damage. Bill was also alarmed by this development as well. Just when they thought Jane was finding her footing once more, she was back to being a nervous wreck. In addition to this fiasco, there were phone calls with silence on the other end. The police had tapped her phone and she cooperated fully, answering every time, hoping it could be traced, but bracing herself each time worried she'd hear that voice, that deep, muffled, teeth-clenched voice. Shut up or I'll kill you. Now, Jane was not born to be a survivor, not of any kind. None of Ear's victims were. Jane was born in my home state, New Jersey, in Plainsfield, growing up in Denellen, a community of middle-class folks with down-to-earth values. Her mother was a psychiatric nurse at Lyons Veterans Hospital, and Dad was an electrician. Brother Tom rounded out the family of four, and the early years were good, playing hide-and-seek, chasing fireflies. The ice cream truck would drive down the neighborhood with the kids swarming to buy, counting out their nickels, dimes, and quarters. Mom played the piano and would entertain as neighbors sang. Tom occasionally worked with Dad, picking up some electrical skills along the way, which he used to play some practical jokes. Once, he wired the piano seat with a buzzer, which startled anyone attempting to play it. Nana, as Grandma was called, lived with the family, and Jane shared in meal prep in the kitchen, feeling very special. Just like I did as a girl, Jane was a Girl Scout, and life was good. But then out of the blue, she heard screaming, and she saw her dad with his hands around her mother's neck. Nanny intervened and threatened to call the police. Until that moment, Jane had no idea there was anything amiss. Dad's trips to the Lions Club took up a lot of his time, but Jane had no clue he was drinking. With her mom working long, rotating shifts, that summer, Jane and Tom were sent to Camp Echo Hill for a month, and life would never be the same. Dad came to get them, explaining that their mother was in Reno, Nevada, getting a divorce. 
eight-year-old chain was shattered. Who would take care of her dad was her first thought. What a, what a selfless person, even as an eight-year-old. Well, what would become of her and Tom? Jane never considered praying during the upheaval that occurred over this next phase of her life. With Tom living with dad and Jane and Nanny living with mom, her family was divided. She didn't see her dad often, but when she did, she got her first inklings that he was drinking a lot of beer. Before graduation from high school, he and Tom moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Tom would later join the Air Force, and Jane shares, quote, that dad married a nutcase he met in a bar. They got divorced, but got remarried, end quote. Jane and mom moved into a house in Basking Ridge, where Jane, age 13, met Derek, who six years later would be her husband. Jane was attending nursing school, where she received a terrific education with practical experience that would prove valuable in her career. In January 1966, she and Derek were married, with Jane six weeks pregnant, a secret very few knew. Jane worried about how she'd care for a newborn during her final year of nursing school, and God provided her with an answer. She suffered a miscarriage on her wedding night. She was brokenhearted and relieved at the same time, and realized that if she hadn't been pregnant, she'd never have married Derek. They divorced two years later. Jane graduated as the summer of the 1967 Newark riots were occurring. 1,500 injuries flooding the emergency room with 1,600 arrested, chaos erupting. But truth was, Jane loved the guts, the blood, the drama, finding it exhilarating as she dodged stray bullets that flew through broken windows. Young, single, energized, Jane's wandered lust engulfed her. Wanting to see the world, she joined the Air Force. With the Vietnam War going on, she longed to be part of the action. After basic officer training school, she was sent to Travis Air Force Base in California, with her mom transferred to a veterans hospital in Palo Alto, and life couldn't be better. She came to love her life in the military, being assigned to the second medical staging flight. Plane after plane of wounded troops were arriving, with Jane diligently caring for them before they were transferred to their final destinations. She saw all the horrors of war, missing limbs, huge wounds, infections, head injuries, some blinded. So I admire Jane's vocation and her devotion to aiding those wounded and giving back. This was her life's long work, and her professionalism is outstanding. It was at the officers' club that she met her future husband, Bill, who was handsome, smart, and a pilot. In a beautiful military service, they were married. Orders came separating the couple as Jane remained at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines and Bill sent to Thailand. They met a few times in Bangkok and Jane became pregnant with his son, Paul, who I've mentioned a lot. Being a pregnant woman in the military at that time was not considered a positive, and Jane was forced to leave active duty. She returned home in March 1973 after working to house prisoners of war coming in from Vietnam. Paul was born, and the family eventually settled at McClellan Air Force Base, buying their first home, 
that ranch in Citrus Heights. Jane was transferred to the Air Force Reserves, resuming her work, this time with the 65th Aeromedical Evacuation Squad. She flew between Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines and Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii, loving the travel and caring for the wounded. And then October 5, 1976 happened, changing her life forever. After Joseph D'Angelo was arrested and took his plea deal, locking him away for the remainder of his life, the family of Winnie Schultze spoke. When her son Pete was 11 and his sister 5, Ear broke into their home, tying him up and locking his sister in her room. Pete said, quote, He performed horrific acts against our mother while she was bound and blindfolded. End quote. Peter Schultze rejects his family's identification as number 37 uncharged defense and his mother as Jane Doe number 22. They are the Schultze family, strong and loving. They survived, quote, because of her bravery and resolve to do whatever it took to save herself and her family. Winnie Schultze protected her family, end quote. Winnie lived her life fully over the next decades a college graduate, an elementary school teacher, ski instructor, and a breast cancer and stroke survivor. She was married to Peter's dad for 55 years, raising two wonderful children and enjoying four amazing grandchildren. It was a life lived well. Survivor Devin Rogers also gave her statement stemming from the rape on April 2, 1977 where she was traumatized, terrified that her children would find her dead when they woke up in the morning. That she lived, pulled herself together, fearing being identified as a rape victim. Quote, Moving forward, I have never thought of myself as a victim, although it's part of my history. Although it took time and work, I did not let his temporary control over me control the outcome of my life. Today, I am blessed with a husband who is my best friend and four great children, who mostly like me. I feel fortunate that life has been good, except a few bumps along the way. The monster has been unmasked and is no longer of any consequence. I am leaving him behind. The nightmare has ended. End quote. Wow. Just remarkable people. I am just in awe of them, each one. When Jane is described as a survivor, it does not only refer to surviving after the rape. A devout Christian today, she recognizes that God presents challenges and gives miracles, which have enabled her to survive much adversity. At the time ear struck, Jane was a believer, but not overtly religious. Like many, she'd pray when she needed something. But with hindsight and experience, Jane gained a little wisdom, recognizing that she was fortunate in being victim number five. Well, that sounds crazy, right? No, no, not really. Jane was spared from his latter assaults, which were more violent and more vicious as he escalated. She realized that she had a purpose, and more miracles would follow in her life. They are there if one opens their eyes to see them. 
The next life-threatening event occurred as Jane and a friend of hers went to attend an annual party at the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. The night was cold and stormy, even as they were dressed to the nines in heels. She and a friend walked through the garage lobby, and Jane noted a man walking around some cars as her gut began to twing that something was amiss. Yeah, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. But she had to go meet Bill, who was waiting upstairs at the dinner, and she was distracted. Approaching the elevator, suddenly a masked man with a large knife in his hand ran to confront her, demanding money, and the knife resembled the one Ear had used. But Jane became angry, very angry, not fearful. Quote, How can this be happening? Is he kidding? Am I really being held up and threatened? End quote. Disgusted, Jane spat out that she didn't have any money, twisting her diamond ring around to face her palm, adamant that this thief was not going to get anything from her, as her friend trembled in fear, handing him some money. As he leaned in towards Jane, the fear did well up a little, as he hissed, quote, Do you want me to cut up your face? End quote. She threw seven dollars at him, causing him to gesture at her with the knife. And just then, fortunately, a woman entered the lobby and the robber took off. This is Jane adamantly refusing to be a victim again. It just was not happening. Now, this did cause some amount of reflection. All right, Jane realized that the woman who thwarted the robbery by her timely arrival was an angel God had sent to protect them. She also realized she had taken a great risk by not complying, but she was just so angry. God knew she'd been raped, and now, now he'd allowed another attack? Her assumption had been that since she suffered being raped, she would never have to confront a frightening trauma again. Now, this was wrong. Quote, I now know throughout our lives that we all have our share of sunrises and sunsets, many hills and valleys, and many ups and downs, end quote. Important to Jane was the lesson learned, that holding on to faith and trusting the Lord, he will never forsake you and protects. Now, right before the family moved south in 2000, Jane began to experience some stomach issues, and given her expertise in the medical field, she feared she might have cancer. Scheduling a colonoscopy at a military base was possible, but it was also months and months down the road. Having none of this, Jane had to fight the bureaucracy and her doctor trying to get this procedure scheduled. Frustrated, she finally burst into tears, insisting that her doctor listen to her. She was a nurse. She knew something was seriously wrong, and he agreed to schedule her quickly. Jane admits to being a drama queen when it suits her, but I'm not sure that taking control of one's medical care is being overly dramatic. But I'm not going to argue the point with Jane, because she would certainly know best. Coming out of the anesthesia, she heard the doctor repeating, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, over and over. Oh my goodness, what had they found up there? While clarifying, the doctor sheepishly apologized for not initially believing her. He found a large polyp, so large 
he couldn't remove it. If it was cancerous or not, he couldn't say. And a week later, Jane was at Walter Reed having abdominal surgery, which removed a large benign tumor. But then Jane suffered some complications when her intestine became obstructed, going through a sigmoidoscope, IVs, gastro tubes down her throat, with nothing relieving the blockage. Another surgery date was approaching. Jane sat contemplating sunlight streaming in her hospital window on a cold, windy day when her surgeon came in to see her, just coming from his Sunday services. He told her a new possibility had occurred, a rectal tube, which might remedy the situation. Jane asked him to pray with her, and holding hands they did. Being wheeled in for the new procedure, Jane felt a gentle peace flow over her. And this was long before the sedation kicked in. And this time, this new tube did relieve the obstruction. And Jane understood that God's hands were at work in everything. In between illnesses, living in Carmel, California now, Jane and Bill were having marital difficulties. They hoped that moving to a fresh, memory-free place might help put the trauma and anguish behind them. Being a military family, they would move many times, with their son Charles being born overseas and growing up in Heidelberg, Germany. Oh, they loved Heidelberg, a beautiful, romantic city. But all the romance in the world cannot fix a marriage where the spouses cannot communicate well. Jane isn't certain if the rape had anything to do with the deterioration of her marriage to Bill, but when he left the Air Force, Jane remained in Germany, ending their 19-year marriage. Not long after, now living down in Georgia, another medical issue struck Jane. She noticed her stomach increasing in size and brushed it off as weight gain, but things took a turn when she'd cough and leak urine, which can be a part of aging in women, but she decided to seek a medical opinion. Her urologist discovered a large tumor in her abdomen, with a 50% chance of it being malignant. Bracing for an ordeal, Jane attended church services the night before the surgery, with her priest calling her up and laying hands on her stomach and saying a lovely, comforting prayer. That same warm, peaceful feeling carried over from the operating room where Jane felt God's presence with her. Tumor removed, it was not cancerous. But the third time isn't the charm, because in 2003, the real deal struck. Working in an urgent care, Jane had injured her back helping to move a patient. During her back appointment, the doctor became alarmed by an irregular dark-shaped mole she observed on her back. It needed to be removed. Jane saw her dermatologist, and this time the result came back, malignant melanoma. Well, that stuff will kill you. Fortunately, it had not spread. And once again, a miracle made her a survivor once more, the shadow of death rolling away. I have to think that she injured her back so that she would discover the mole. God works in mysterious ways. I cannot stress how important dermatology appointments are. Bear with me as I tell you a quick story. I developed a wart on my knee, and it was certainly unattractive. And I went out, I went to the pharmacy, and I bought Compound W. And I put it on night after night, and the wart dissolved. 
but the dang thing came back. Okay, so I made the dermatology appointment and a little cryo, and it froze off. But while we were there, we did a full body scan, and I had, just like Jane, this little tiny mole on my back, and it was dark and it was irregular, but it was on my back where I couldn't really monitor it, so we decided to take it off better safe than sorry. The biopsy came back malignant melanoma. I was shocked senseless. As I said, that stuff will kill you. And again, it was on my back. I never, never would have seen it if God hadn't sent the wart. So a large area had to be excised out of my back. And 12 stitches later, there has been no reoccurrence in almost four years. I was always cautious in the sun anyway, but now I am even more careful. And since both Jane and I have gone through this, I felt compelled to mention it. Warm weather will be here before you know it, so make your appointment. Okay, with all Jane's wondrous recoveries already, there is another one that she believes is her greatest gift from the Lord. His taking away her addiction to alcohol, which had plummeted her into a deep depression. For years, Jane had been hiding bottles around the house, knowing a few sips and she'd be calmer, relaxed, her anxieties retreating. While this self-medicating coping skill worked for a time, it had finally taken control of her life. Happy hour once began at 4 p.m. when she'd have a glass of wine preparing dinner, but it gradually shifted to noon. And she was justified. She had so many medical matters to deal with, her son Paul by now was in the military, in a risky situation in Iraq, and Jane's mom had her own health issues. When one desires to engage in addictive behaviors, it is easy to delude ourselves into thinking excessive imbibing is perfectly fine when it is not. Examining her timeline, Jane doesn't recall alcohol being a problem until after they left Germany in the early 1990s. By then, she and Bill had divorced, and she was living in Virginia, beginning a new life with her new husband, Warren. She retired as a colonel after serving 30 years and left civilian nursing as well. But in doing this, Jane lost her lifelong identity. One day, she was colonel, and the next day, a middle-aged woman sitting at home alone as her husband worked with her son in school. Alcohol filled the void and became her companion. She resorted to hiding bottles and driving to dumpsters to get rid of the empties. Huge, huge red mountains. Huge. When Warren retired and they moved again, she was busy settling into a new routine, but soon alcoholism reared its ugly head again. After a few alcohol-fueled social mishaps, one day Jane heard God in her head, quote, Tell him, meaning Warren, tell him you might have a drinking problem. Tell him you need help, end quote. And she did. Sitting Warren down, she shared her serious concern. Shocked, he'd had no idea enveloping her in love and concern. Next move was to rehab, with Jane sobbing her eyes out during the drive. While this was initiated by Jane, she saw herself as being terribly depressed, not fully accepting she was an alcoholic. 
Strip-searched on her arrival, she was utterly humiliated. Over the next few days, she could not relate to the other men and women undergoing treatment. They spoke of serving time, broken marriages, DUIs, and Jane concluded that she did not belong there. Quote, I am not one of them, end quote. She asked to be put into another program for people with psychological disorders, meaning depression, and was bluntly refused. She needed to stay put and continue with the program. Jane cried for three days, incredulous that she had ended up in this awful place with people talking about abusing drugs and alcohol. And she was not one of them. She was different. She was special. She was ashamed of being there and wanted nothing more than to go home. But then out of the blue, her throbbing back pain stopped. It just stopped. See, on being processed into rehab, Jane was prescribed a medication, Neurontin, which is used, among other things, to prevent the DTs. But it could also be used to treat back pain, and Jane's was now gone. All right, you're going to have to indulge me again because I'm going to tell you another parallel life story. Back when I was teaching, I was electrocuted. Uh, (laughs) Every annoying kid's dream come true, my teacher was electrocuted. Right at the end of class in front of my students, it was really, really horrifying. I was unplugging an overhead projector, which is an antiquated piece of technology from back in the day. And both it and the electrical socket had some kind of major malfunction, and it electrocuted me. So the electrical current ran up my arm, split at my shoulder, and ricocheted through my skull, at the same time passing down to my knee, leaving an exit burn. I could feel the grooves of my brain where the electricity had passed through, which is somewhat disgusting, by the way. I could have done without that. And I was paralyzed, unable to pull my hand away with the electricity flooding through me. So finally, with enormous effort, I yanked my body backward, landing hard on my desk, just as the bell rang and students departed. While I sought medical care, after months and months and months of physical therapy, I have a 10% disability in my dominant right hand, which plagues me still. And because the nerves were fried, I was prescribed. Neurontin, the same drug as Jane, and for years, so I understand exactly what Jane is talking about. Well, anyway, anyway, Jane's family continued its support as she powered through rehab, and it finally began to sink in that she really did have a problem, and while she might be depressed, she was also an alcoholic. On her final day in rehab, she spoke the words she had avoided, quote, I am Jane, and I am an alcoholic, end quote. In her exit interview with her family attending, Jane apologized for the anguish she had caused by drinking. She swore she would never drink again, and they were proud of her for admitting her problem and her resolve to move forward. Home just six weeks, Jane was back drinking, more than she had prior to rehab. It only took one drink, and she just couldn't stop. So afraid. Jane feared she'd die from this disease, something Jane stresses. It is a disease, but one she could control by choosing to enter remission. Terribly hungover, heartsick, she fell to her knees, 
praying and praying for God to help her with this. She begged. She cried like she never had before. Please lift this obsession with alcohol. She had never, ever wanted anything so badly, and she thinks that God knew it. Exhausted, she fell into a deep sleep. And on waking, her desire to drink was gone. Yet another miracle God had performed. That night, she and Warren dined with friends, with Jane ordering an iced tea, which hit the spot. And this was July 12, 2013, and she has never had another drink. That God helped her overcome her alcoholism was a huge turning point in her spiritual life as well. This realization wasn't instantaneous, but when her desire for liquor vanished, she was, quote, on fire for our Lord and have been ever since. I want everyone to know about his power, his grace, and his mighty love, end quote. Once again, Jane had survived, banishing another shadow of death. Looking back for a moment, immediately following the rape by the East Area Rapist, Jane was depressed, entering a black hole, not unheard of for rape victims. She overate, stopped wearing makeup, isolated herself. She blamed herself, wondering how she had attracted his attention and where. She recalled that during the rape, he made a comment Something about how she looked good at the military or the officer's club. His tone was demeaning, dripping with sarcasm. He deliberately let her know he had seen her and she had been oblivious. This deepened her depression. After three months of this painful struggle, Jane visited the Rape Crisis Center for the first time, meeting others who suffered rape, sharing their stories, noting commonalities, your fears, responses, it helped immeasurably. The realization was that Jane was not weird and she was not going crazy. Her going to the Rape Crisis Center in Sacramento changed everything. Jane spoke to other rape survivors and received counseling from the staff. Wanting to do more, Jane interviewed 14 other rape survivors and she began to write a pamphlet she titled a victim's perspective on rape. Take the disrupted threads of your life and find new patterns to weave them. Her intent was that the pamphlet would be handed out in area emergency rooms when a rape victim arrived. Well, great in theory, this did not actually happen, but the writing of it was very therapeutic and it provided valuable insights as valuable today as decades ago. And I'm going to share some of them paraphrasing. Let go of the rapist. All your feeling impacts you, not him. Remember that anger is self-destructive, if not channeled appropriately. Get counseling right away. Do not wait three months. It is not your fault. Rape is a violent assault, not a sexual attack. The worst advice is forget about it. Rape is a psychological wound that will never completely heal on its own. And you cannot change what happened. You can control your response to it. There are many more of these, all equally wise and useful. So again, I say to you, make sure you read Jane's book. 
something else the rapist did, which certainly compromised the healing of the victims, were the phone calls he made. How positively barbaric of him. In 1978, hang-up calls began, followed by those with deep breathing and that manufactured raspy voice saying, I'm gonna kill you. The police attempted to trace the calls and recorded them, so many of them are online today if you're interested in hearing them. Just outrageous. It wasn't bad enough to terrorize and traumatize the woman with the rape, but now he was going to continue to enjoy tormenting, poking, feeding on the fear he's generating again and again. One woman fainted during a call as it brought back all those terrible memories. And now I come to Jane's most controversial insight, and it is on the subject of forgiveness. I can see the minefields coming ahead. Forgiveness is a choice. Some view this as outrageous, insanity. Why would anyone forgive this monster? Quote, he robbed me of my dignity and my self-worth. He violated and defiled me. And you want me to forgive? End quote. Jane writes, now these are valid points, absolutely. Jane, too, had a hard time embracing the concept of forgiveness, a very difficult process, and it was not immediate, but rather a prolonged kind of daily activity, taking years to fully understand, and it came to make sense to her. With God's help, she was able to forgive and rid herself of this tremendous burden on her life weighing her down. She describes it as ridding herself of a heavy, trash-filled backpack that was her companion for far too long. It added nothing to her life. She was full of hate, bitterness, anger, and thoughts of revenge. Well, wow, that kind of negativity can really, really damage a person, especially over the long run. And Jane loves the saying, quote, revenge imprisons us, forgiveness sets us free. Quote. As a nurse familiar with psychiatric disorders, she knew that manifesting hate and rage would keep her emotionally sick with the rapist in control. It was like being poisoned. So Jane forgave, but she has never forgotten, and these are very different things. She embraced forgiveness to release her emotional pain and reclaim her life, resentment, and regret ebbing away freeing her from a prison of hate. This is about Jane finding peace and not allowing the damage to control her life. It may not be possible for everybody, but research indicates that forgiving those who have wronged us can lower blood pressure, cholesterol, and our heart rate, all tangible positives. For Jane, in moving past the trauma and helping other survivors, she was helping herself to heal. But healing also leaves scars. And this reminds me of author Lisa Turkist, who wrote, quote, Scars are beautiful when we see them as glorious reminders that we have courageously survived. End quote. I think that sums up what Jane is expressing. But remember, forgiveness is a choice. Jane identifies as a survivor, not a victim. This led her to, quote, do something positive with the life he has spared, end quote. She refers to this as turning pain into power. 
Mind you, she achieved this over many, many years. Recognizing what you need to do is very different from actually knowing how to achieve it. Jane embarked on educating herself about rape, spoke to other survivors, which generated that pamphlet, which I mentioned. She was able to attend a therapy session with a psychiatrist at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville to visit rapists in prison and learn more about why men rape. That is ballsy, or maybe it's over me, but either way, wow. Right. One rapist said, quote, I get my joy out of dominating, end quote, which struck a chord with Jane. So true. Domination and control was one of Beer's main weapons. She continued to meet with the detectives working on her case, getting to know them better, and she recognized that they were not the ogres she had previously perceived, but caring with a positive attitude. Now, she was able to be receptive and not condemning all men as she first had after her assault. Detectives began calling Jane when other rapes occurred, and with their consent, Jane listened with an understanding ear and talked with them, their common experiences forming a bond. She reassured them that they were not insane, that their feelings were completely normal for a woman who had been raped. And some of these women had also been raped by the East Area Rapist. Jane organized a luncheon at her home, and seven women attended. Some were still in shock, some laughed, some cried, some were silently observant. But sharing their collective nightmare helped. The message? You're not alone. Jane came to lead a weekly survivors meeting for rape and incest victims at the local rape center. Now trained, she could make hospital visits to be with rape survivors during their exams, providing emotional support and answers to their anguished questions. By this time, any shame or guilt had faded away. Jane was living a productive, positive life, which she is adamant that God's grace brought about. Cliché, this is the best case of lemons to lemonade that I have ever heard. Jane says she turned her mess into a message, and I love that. For a decade after the rape, Jane had clung to her anonymity, but finally began to see the merits in sharing her story of rape and alcoholism with others. Quote, I was always afraid of the gossip and the rumors that would result if I told anyone that I was a recovering alcoholic. Through prayer and listening to God's word, I was assured that although arrows may come my way, he will always be with me. After telling my story to a crowd of 52 people, I received a standing ovation. Others were empowered that weekend to also share their secrets and seek help. End quote. Jane wraps up her book referring to a television interview with author M. William Phelps, the serial killer expert and host of the ID series Dark Minds. And of course, I've used his book, She Survived Jane, co-authored with Jane as a resource in the series. At the time the television interview aired, Ear was still out there, but Jane was resolved to show her face on TV and not allow him any control over her. Bravo, Jane. Now, Jane's struggle to regain control took years, and she did suffer from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, 
triggered under certain circumstances where memories of the rape emerged. She avoided skiing and scary TV shows, fearing on seeing a ski mask. A man wearing black high-top sneakers triggered suspicion. She recognized that she will never completely get over it, and those scars remain. Jane agrees with Rose Kennedy's saying, quote, It has been said that time heals all wounds. I do not agree. The wounds remain. In time, the mind, protecting its sanity, covers them with scar tissue and the pain lessens. But it's never gone. End quote. Jane came to realize she had two choices. Hide under her bed with her shame and fear and guilt, or she could fight back and retake her life. There were plenty of days when she wanted to lock the world away and have a pity party. But this is one brave, independent woman who would not give in to defeat. She writes, quote, Over the past 38 years, I have gone through some hard times, but through the magnitude and depth of God's love, I have managed to live a happy and successful life. End quote. Writing in 2012, Jane was married to Warren and celebrating 20 years together. With both having military backgrounds, they enjoyed traveling as well as their church activities. Warren joined Jane on a mission to the Dominican Republic, providing medications for children with health issues, and she continues to give back to her community. Her sons, Paul and Charles, have grown up to be wonderful, decent men, both serving in the military. Paul recently retired as a full colonel, enjoying his children who are doing well and thriving. Jane did lose her mom in 2008, her chief cheerleader and supporter. And she wraps up the book with, quote, I am at peace, happy, joyous, and free. I give thanks to God for the kaleidoscope of experiences, both good and bad, that have shaped my life. I still have some fear, but when that feeling strikes, I give it to God. My experience is part of who I am and has made me the woman I am today. I believe I was called to do God's work and to reach out to others. The trials I have experienced were put there for a reason. They helped to clarify the mission God had planned for me. End quote. I truly believe that that is a beautiful lesson for us all. In the final chapter of Frozen in Fear, Jane answers questions that she had received over the years. An authentic Jane answers honestly and thoroughly. An important question was, did she know a rapist was at large? And Jane did not. Only after her assault, the police informed the public that a serial rapist was on the loose and they should take precautions. They finally made the connection that this guy broke into homes prior to scry information about the people living there and later returned to rape and rob. The media hadn't reported the connection between robberies and rapes either. Jane said, quote, When I was robbed of jewelry and coins in my son's piggy bank two weeks before the rape, I never connected the two. I wish we'd known, end quote. He had stolen inexpensive rings that Jane had purchased in Bangkok, Thailand, stealing her valued mementos. Why had Jane waited 38 years to write her story? Well, who would want to revisit the worst day of anyone's life? Jane would pray every night before going to bed, Dear Lord, please do not let me dream of the rape tonight. And fortunately, she had no nightmares. 
but she did wonder if I start to write a book, will I have to relive the trauma, the fear? Will it take a terrible toll on her? After reading A Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, the motivation came to her. And one reason she focuses on the miracles she received from God is that she needed a larger reason than just herself to find the words. I believe she succeeded. Instead of reading only about a deep, terrible crime, I felt uplifted when I turned the final page. When asked if she thought Ear would be caught, Jane is downright prophetic. Quote, My hope would be yes. They have his DNA now, and better technology is in place, so there's a real chance that if he's still out there, they will find him. End quote. And that is exactly what happened four years later on April 24th, 2018. DNA all the way. Criminal genetic genealogy burst out of the forensics lab and Joseph D'Angelo was identified as a suspect, arrested while complaining he had a roast in the oven. He'd later malinger, pretending to be frail, taking to a wheelchair, when a week earlier he was zooming along at 100 miles an hour on his motorcycle. He is a liar. Do not believe it. Uh, by the way, retired investigator Paul Holes shared the motorcycle story. And here is my pitch for uploading your raw DNA to GEDmatch or Family Tree so law enforcement can use it to get these terrible criminals off our streets. Please, please opt in. Every day we hear about decades on decades old cases being solved. Just last month, a break in the Colonial Parkway murders, the killer of David Roebling and Robin Edwards was identified as Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., and another murder that wasn't tied to him or Colonial Parkway at all, the murder of Teresa Lynn Howell in July 1989, was also connected. So that's three murders solved. So let's try to do what we can in 2024. This is a big way to help murder bookies. I am pausing our story here, episode 81, Survivor Voices, and I'll be back in two weeks with the conclusion of Frozen in Fear, the true story of surviving the shadows of death, episode 82, Sister Survivors, where more voices of survivors and their families will be heard, resonating outward, and I hope to help and continue to support people who have survived sexual assault. If you care to make a donation, to Hope Haven of Low County Child Advocacy and Rape Center in Beaufort, South Carolina. There is a link on my blog. And my next book, here comes the announcement, is Murder on Elm Street by Jeremy L. Lubberts, a retired detective on this controversial case. Buckle up for this one, murder bookies. When two teenage cousins break into a residence on Elm Street in Little Falls, Minnesota, a true-life horror story unfolds. More than 24 hours after two teenagers lose their lives, Detective Jeremy Lovers responds to a suspicious activity complaint at the same Elm Street residence, beginning a case that will forever alter his life and embroil his community and the nation into a debate over just how far people can go to protect themselves in their own homes. I remember when this case occurred, but I had no idea what actually happened. So we are going down the rabbit hole on this one. 
Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. Let's take a couple minutes to leave an awesome review that'll help me make new Murder Bookies. I know the platforms don't make it easy, but please leave a nice review. Share your thoughts with me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or on Twitter X or on Facebook, Instagram, or you can join Patreon for $4 a month. Valentine's Day is two weeks away. Check out my Spreadshop merch. There are adorable teddy bears and kitties and t-shirts and so much more. Thrill your favorite murder bookie with a thoughtful gift. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with all of my sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and our wine pairing too. Always trust your gut, murder bookies. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbach.